It's good to have our group back. I enjoy having the variety up here, don't you guys? Just the, the, the voicing and all that. Thank you guys so much for, many of them were uh, voluntold and uh, just asked to come and they never even, um, never, never even a second of thought. They said, yes, we, we want to serve in this way. So thank you guys so much for all you're doing. Just add so much to the service. Every now and then an event happens in our nation's history that is so significant of such historical consequence that we need to kind of stop what we're doing. We need to stop our, our uh, current study and, and kind of look at it. Uh, we've done this a lot this year. We did it with COVID. We did it with quarantines. We did it with race riots. We did it with uh, the State of Theology survey that came out. Uh, we did that back in November, I think it was, maybe maybe October, I can't remember. 9-11, shootings, violence, those things happen locally, nationally. We need, a, we need a, some guidance on how to think of them as Christians, and then sometimes things happen or some things are said in our nation that is so unbelievably stupid that to answer it would be to give it more dignity than it deserves. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what happened this week. Uh, I'm sure you have heard about this, but um, our U.S. House of Representatives was seated officially ceremoniously began with a senator who is a former United Methodist minister. And he began the proceedings with uh, prayer and many of the things he asked for in the prayer were legitimate common grace concerns. But uh, we could, and quite honestly, we could go through the prayer line by line and it was actually a blasphemous prayer. But then what got the most attention was how he ended it. He ended it by saying, amen, and a woman. And that has gotten all kinds of attention. Um, And honestly, I thought it was a joke at first, and then I saw the actual video, and and I I, got to tell you, some of them are just absolutely hilarious. The memes that have come as a result of this are just so funny. Uh, We've been talking about mask mandates and woman dates suggesting that the Berlin Wall was really to separate Germany and Germany. Um, that was my personal favorite. Uh, Roxanne sent me one that uh, says, we still say amen at our church, but as a compromise, we're gonna sing hers instead of hymns. <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, and John and Amanda asked me this week, they're like, so are we gonna say a woman in church? I said, no, but we're gonna sing hers this week instead of hymns. But uh, so those were the funny ones, but the more serious ones, the more serious responses were just as troubling. Uh, One of the more serious uh, was just misinformed, I mean. One conservative representative and, and news commentator tweeted that amen is a Latin term, wrong again, and it's not a term of gender, which... He's kind of correct, but actually, technically, he's kind of not. Hebrew words do have gender, but it's not, a, it's not a male-female thing. Guys, this is one of the problems with civic religion. This is one of the problems with cultural Christianity. It, 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 it devolves into nothing more than surfacy sentimentality 
And from there, it has nowhere further to go down than absurdity. And that's exactly what we saw this week. We know that's when we, but it, got, it did get me thinking. How many of us have been saying amen for as long as you can remember? And yet, how many of us know what it, said, what it means? It means so be it. Yeah, that's the basic definition. But have you ever really thought about the nuances of it and how it's used in the scriptures and how the Hebrews used it? And, and does that inform our faith at all? And so it's just kind of interesting to look at. When I told Roxanne I was going to be preaching on amen this Sunday, she said, please don't. <laughs> but, uh, but, but then when I mentioned kind of where I was going with it, she's like, eh, all right. So uh, have we ever really examined it deeply? You know, just, just really thought about what kind of nuances does it bring out? So I thought we would do that today. Just to, just to examine a part of our faith that in all honesty, had it not been for the good senator, we might have never even thought about in all honesty. And so, so it's a good opportunity just to say, what do we mean when we say amen? What are the different understandings that comes into it? What are the different uh, nuances and, and, and different ways that is used in the scripture? And, and how does that inform our faith? And so just a couple of quick things about it. Number one, amen is a Hebrew term, not Latin. Uh, the exact term we use technically is a Hebrew adverb. And it is a universal term. This is the most transliterated word in human languages. Every human language has this word in it uh, that has had any Christian influence whatsoever. You can listen to someone pray in Chinese, Japanese, Greek, both New Testament Greek and modern Greek, Swahili, French, Dutch, Russian, Arabic, and you will hear this term. It is transliterated, it is not translated. In other words, that means we just take the word and we bring it into a new language without actually uh, saying what it means. So it's pronounced the same way in just about every language. Uh, it's actually pronounced amen in Greek, or in, or in Hebrew and in Greek for that matter. And when it's used in culture today, it generally expresses a couple of things. Number one, it's the conclusion of the prayer, like, like saying the end if you will. I think, that, I think it's fair to say that that's how many Christians use it. But it can also indicate strong agreement. I was preaching at an African-American church in Memphis one time, and I got up and I said, let's turn to John chapter 3, and I got 17 hallelujahs, 14 amens, and a praise the Lord, just by announcing the text. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be good. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but generally when we shout amen, we say strong agreement. And you'll even hear this among seculars. They'll, they'll say something like, amen, brother. You know, what, what do they mean? I strongly agree with this. And you know, and technically that, that, is, that is its basic meaning. That's its basic meaning. It, it, you know, sometimes when seculars get a hold of a word, they kind of butcher it. But in this case, they... They, they actually kind of kept the basic meaning. It, it means strong agreement, but it doesn't express the deeper connections and nuances that the word is actually used with in the Bible. And so that's what we want to do today. Since it is a word born out of the Hebrew language, I want to I take some time to look at how it's used in the Old Testament 
and then see if that informs our faith at all. I don't really have a base text, but we are going to be looking at Deuteronomy 27 uh, at least four or five times. So you might want to put your ribbon there or turn in your... This is a truly honest-to-goodness word study this morning. This is not an expository sermon as I typically do. So Deuteronomy chapter 27, but we're, we're just going to be kind of going back and forth to it. We're not really going to read it or, or exegete it. So I just want to take away, and you know, my, me and my threes, so I'm, we're just going to focus on, on three nuances, three understandings of the word amen this morning. And so the first, the first way that we see it used, and, and again, this is the basic meaning, is that it does express confession. The word amen, or amen, or amen, or however you pronounce it, expresses confession. In other words, it's an expression of faith. It is an expression that means that this is what I believe as well. The word uh, that the, the three consonants in Hebrew, the, the A is a consonant, A, M, N, those three consonants are the base root of the word. And it, it, it signifies a group of words that means faith or trustworthiness or genuineness or truth. It is, it is equivalent to the English word faithfulness or faith, if you will, the word group. So like, for example, it's used in some very important passages. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse six, when Abram says, and he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That is a term that the New Testament authors use to base justification by faith alone. That word believed in the Hebrew text is actually amen, Abraham amend the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Another verse that is used by New Testament authors is Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, where it says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Again, that word faith is amen. The righteous shall live by his amen is how that is used. Now, like I said, the form that we're used to, amen or amen, is technically an adverb in the Hebrew language and it carries a few ideas in regards to faith. Number one, agreement. It says that I agree with this confession. Uh, for instance, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 36, I'll go ahead and read it. You can write it down if you want. But blessed, uh, David is praying, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, amen, and praise the Lord. It's the end of a long prayer of David when the ark is brought into Jerusalem. And at the end of the prayer, the people say, amen. In other words, they agree with both the content and the theology of the prayer. They agree with what it says. It says, so be it, we agree with your blessing of God. So be it. Let it be so. And this is why in the text, it's always responsive. It always, in the Old Testament, it always comes at the end of a doxology. It always comes at the, now Jeremiah makes an exception one time, but he's, he's kind of being sarcastic to some false prophets other than that, it always, when it's used this way, it always comes at the end 
It's always responsive. So like, for example, Deuteronomy 27, the uh, congregation is standing on Mount Gerizim on one side, Mount Ebal on the other, and the Levites are in the middle reading off the curses. And 12 different times when they read off, cursed is he who does this, cursed is he who does that, after each one, and the people say, amen, right? So it's always responsive because it expresses agreement. 12 times they do this. And not only this, but we also see it in the book of Psalms. As you may know, the book of Psalms is not just one book. It's actually five books. And at the end of the, four, the first four books, there is a doxology that is not actually part of the psalm, but it ends the book, and each one of them ends with the word, amen. Psalm 41, 13, amen and amen. Psalm 72, 19, the end of book two, amen and amen. Psalm 89, verse 52, the end of book three, amen and amen. And then Psalm 106, 48, the end of book four, let all the people say amen. And so it's always responsive. So the expression means so be it or let it be so. When we say amen, we are saying that this is my confession. This is what I hold to. This is what I believe. And I am in agreement with this. It's the congregation's way to both affirm and take ownership in the prayer that has been prayed. It becomes your prayer. You know, now usually in Baptist traditions, we don't do this, but, but in other denominations, when a prayer is said and the final amen is said, everyone repeats amen afterwards. And you know, to be honest with you, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Now, I, I know I'm a high church kind of guy. I like some of the liturgical elements. But I do like that because when the congregation says amen together, what you're doing is you're saying that this is my confession and this is becoming my prayer. Not, not, just, not just a prayer that I have listened to, but a prayer that I am verbally in agreement with. And so that's why I like it. Sometimes Baptist preachers will say, and all the people say, you know, and, and I like it when they do that. I like it because, because it expresses that group confession. I want you to see how important this is. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 and 20, and I'm just gonna look at verse 20. A verse that is hard, or excuse me, verse 19, I'm sorry a verse that is horribly misused and ripped out of its context. But don't let that take away from the, from the vitality of what it's saying. It says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Beloved, the church of Jesus Christ has power. The church of Jesus Christ has amazing power. We have the power of God at our disposal. And that power is most realized and that power is most experienced when we are in unity. We are unified. That's why those who continue to cause division and disharmony in the church and refuse to accept biblical correction, Bible says we need to deal with them. Disunity is Satan's best weapon in the church. And it has caused many. He uses it well. And so amen is our, our verbal witness to unity. When we say amen together, we say we are unified. We are in agreement with this. It's our verbal witness to the teaching and direction of scripture. 
but it also expresses community. And I've already kind of touched on this a little bit, but when we say amen, we express community. We express community. What do I mean by that? It expresses this in just about every context that it appears in when it's used in this way. When the adverb is used as a liturgical word, it is used to express that community. And here's why, because it's always vocal. Looking back at Deuteronomy chapter 27, the people were to say aloud. In fact, they were literally to shout it from one mountain to the other, back and forth to one another, amen, 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 as the different curses were read. They responded aloud and they responded together. It was a group acknowledgement that we together are the people of God, that we are God's people and we are in this together. Each person found their identity, not just in God, but in the covenant that they had with one another. It was an expression that, that these are my brothers and sisters or in, in Old Testament terminology, they, it, these are my neighbors In God. These are my covenant neighbors. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. And they are mutually accountable to one another. One of the reasons why discipline throughout all scripture, whether it's stoning in the Old Testament or whether it is church discipline in the New Testament, that's the reason. Have you noticed that it's always carried out by community, not by an elected few? Have you ever noticed that? Because it is community accountability. It is community responsibility. When when I say amen with a group of people, I acknowledge that I am accountable not only to God, but I am accountable both to my brothers and sisters in Christ to help them grow in Christ, to support them and their growth in Christ, and they support me. Brothers and sisters, I need you. And you need me. And we all need one another. There is no lone ranger Christian. And the Bible says very little about me and Jesus. Have you ever noticed the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, those of you who use the old King James, you can see this a little more because there was a differentiation. But in the old King James, when you and ye are used, it's plural. When thee and thou is used, it's singular. Now we don't have that in modern English. We can't really get away with that anymore. But for the most part, most of the second person pronouns dealing with the church are plural. It's a group. We are a community. And that's why when amen is said in the Old Testament, it's always covenantal. It's always covenantal. It occurs primarily in liturgical context, religious worship context. And when they all responded by saying amen in Deuteronomy 27, they're taking on a shared identity. That we are identified by the God who redeemed us and his gracious word to us. 
This is our identity. This is where we take our form. We have a shared identity together. We have a shared history, a shared story, a shared belief. We are bound by more than just mutual interest and common good. We are bound by the holy, redemptive work of God performed in the Exodus. And now in the New Testament, we share that same common story, that same common history, that same common belief that you and I are bound by so much more than just common interests, common politics, common this, common that. We are shared by the holy redemptive work of Jesus Christ performed on our behalf. That's what binds us together. And we are bound by his infallible, sufficient, and authoritative word of God. That's what we're bound to. That's what it says when we say amen together. That's why I like it when congregations say amen together. Because it expresses that idea. That I, it's not just me and Jesus. I'm not in this alone with Jesus, but these are my brothers and sisters to Christ. And, and with them, I share a common heritage, a common family that is, that is greater than any DNA genes could ever say. We are united by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that runs deeper than anything else in the world. Our common DNA is our salvation the Holy Spirit working in us all. Beloved, I'm bound to you by the sacred blood of Jesus Christ that was shed to redeem us both. That's why, you know, you can, you can go to foreign lands and I've done this and, and you can hear people sing praises and now you don't understand what they're saying, but you just feel the spirit in the, in the room with them. Have you ever experienced that? It's an amazing experience because even though I don't understand what they're saying, even though I can't sing it with them, I have a shared bond with them. And that bond is deeper than languages. That bond is deeper than language barriers. I mean, I was, I was, I was hugging people and, 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 and just fellowshipping with people that I couldn't even talk to. I had no idea what they were saying. Maybe they were calling me an idiot. I don't know. Kind of like when you talk to a puppy, you know, but... Maybe I was their puppy that day. I don't know. But, but, but there was a common experience there because we were bound by something deeper than a language barrier. We were bound by the blood of Jesus Christ and the praise of our almighty God. And that's a powerful experience. Powerful. We're a corporate identity. When I say amen, I acknowledge that I am part of you and you are part of me. We are a covenant community. I'm accountable to you. You are accountable to me and one another. We're all in this together. We're a corporate identity. You know, the American church has gotten away from this. American church, the extreme individualism of the last century has taken its toll on the church. Today, church is somewhere I go. It's not a community that I belong to. It's not something that's bigger than me. It's something that does what I want or I'm gonna go to the other church down the road. It's become all about the individualistic ideas. And as mega churches grew in the 70s and 80s, the, the emphasis became more about attracting interest, the rise of the attractional church appealing to the flesh. 
to win converts. I go to this church or that church because I like this or that. It has nothing to do with the Spirit. Now, unfortunately, in recent years, there's been pushback to this, and now many are denying the idea of individual salvation whatsoever. A lot of people now are saying the idea that we are saved as a corporate body, the, the social gospel, the social justice ideas. Even the Southern Baptist Convention is flirting with things like critical race theory and intersectionality. This is all creeping into the church. Now we're kind of pushing back and going to the other extreme. Beloved, you are not saved by community. You are not saved in community. You are saved by and in Jesus Christ and him alone. But we are saved into a community. We're saved for community. Not in community, not by community, but into a community. And just like you didn't get to choose your first family, as much as some of us wish we had of, you don't choose your second family either. And so we are baptized into the church, all baptized into one body, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. All baptized into one body. So when I say amen, I am saying that I am united to this group with a unification that is deeper than anything else in the world. I am saying I belong to this group. This group is not privileged to have me. I'm privileged to be in this group. I'm privileged to be part of this community. I'm privileged to be part of what God is doing in the world, in his church. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than our little world here in Batesville, Arkansas. It's a worldwide movement of God-called believers all joined together by the same shared story, the same shared history that I am a sinner saved by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for me and adopted as God's, only, God, God's son and a joint heir with his only begotten son. I am a child of God now, not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done for me and what he's done for all of you. And that is a bond that I share with you. It's deep. And when I say amen, I acknowledge that. That's why, you know, I'm glad that amen is not translated. I'm glad that you can listen to Chinese prayers and hear the word amen. I'm glad that you can listen to Swahili prayers and hear the word Amen, because it's a bond. It unifies us. It's the most unifying word in the world. And so it brings us all together. I'm united with this group of believers. I'm indebted to them and they to me for good works and love and mutual accountability. Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. You know, there's 35 one another commandments in the New Testament. That's what a church is. It's not committee meetings. It's not business meetings. I'm not saying those things aren't important. But the life of the church is the one another commands of the New Testament. The life of the church is our common bond in Jesus Christ. It's not a business, it's a body. 
not an organization, it's an organism. And do with this building whatever you want. The church will survive. Because we're held by something much better than a building. And amen is the verbal witness to that. When I say amen, I take on this identity that I am a child of God with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that means that amen expresses both confession, it expresses community, but then finally, we also see an element of commitment here. We see an element of commitment. And just looking one more time at Deuteronomy 27, verses 15 through 20, again, 12 times, a curses are read, curses the man who does this, curses the man who does that, curses the one who does this and that. And every time, 12 different times, the community says, amen. Each action describing something that the people are not to do as the people of God. And when the people say amen, what they're saying is, you're right, God. Charlie over here to my left, he shouldn't be doing that. (laughs) Is that what they're saying? You're right, God. That'd be an awful thing to do. (laughs) Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. You're right, God. That's a terrible thing to do. Amen. That's all they're saying, right? No. There's an implied commitment there. That when the person, each person who says amen is making a commitment to God that says, I will abhor and I will avoid these things. I will not do these things. When they say it, amen, they were saying, I agree to abide by these principles. There's an applied commitment. Nehemiah chapter five, verse 13. I'll just read it to you. You might want to write it down for later. But Nehemiah, he says, I I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, may God, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise so that he may be shaken out and emptied. And the assembly said, amen. They agreed to that principle. They agreed by saying amen. They are committing themselves to keeping their word, to keeping that promise. They're obligating themselves to Nehemiah, to one another, and most importantly, to God. So when the Hebrews said amen at the end of their prayer, they're making a commitment to God, a a commitment to live their lives in accordance with the prayer that they just prayed. They prayed as well as as their commitment to see that prayer answered as far as they are able to. That's what the Hebrew meant when he said, amen. I'm committed to live by, the, by what I just prayed. And I'm also committed to see this prayer answered as the Lord gives me opportunity. I mean, a blind man is walking down the road. No, can't lead a blind man down the wrong way. Can't do that. I've committed not to do that. So what do you do? You just walk off, right? Well, no, not exactly. Haven't really kept the heart of that curse, have you? No, you lead them in the right way. And as the Lord gives you opportunity, when I pray this prayer and I say amen, I am committing that as the Lord gives me opportunity, I will be the instrument that the Lord uses to see this prayer through. Have you ever noticed how many missionaries, their, their testimony is that they grew a great burden 
so much so to where they had to go. Have you ever noticed how many times they start their testimony by saying, well, you know, I began praying for this area. And then after a while, the prayers got stronger and got stronger and stronger. And after a while, I knew God was calling me to go there. Beloved, is that how we pray? When we pray for a lost person, a lost family member, are we willing to be the ones to share the gospel with them? Are we willing to be the one that lives Christ-like lives around them? Are we willing to be the instrument of our own prayers? You know, I, I can't help but to wonder when God, when we ask God to do something, is it because God has put that prayer on our hearts precisely because we're the ones that he's wanting to use to see that prayer fulfilled? I don't know that. But I can't help but to wonder. Do we pray with that openness? Do we pray with that possibility? Lord, please do this, just use somebody else. I don't think that's quite the heart that God's looking for. I could be wrong. And obviously, that's a broad stroke of a brush. There are exceptions. I don't know. Something to think about. We say often that prayer is not to change God so much as it is to change us. How does God change us? By doing different things. Whereas before we might not have shared our faith with that family member now. Because we have prayed for their salvation, we understand that we might be the very one God's using to lead them to Christ. Do we pray with that openness? So often we sit back and pray and pray and pray, all the while expecting someone else to do it. Perhaps the reason God's put it into your heart to pray about it so much is because he's calling you. Could be, I don't know, could be. But the question is, do we pray with that openness? When I would go and candidate for, as a youth pastor, I would always tell the parents that my goal is to turn every one of your young men into pastors and preachers and every one of your young ladies into missionaries, pastors' wives, et cetera, et cetera. And inevitably, I would always get that parent, well, my son doesn't want to be a preacher. He wants to be a doctor or whatever. Okay. We'll have a doctor or whatever who knows how to preach. We have a doctor or whatever who is close to the Lord. And by the way, why do we just assume that we're gonna do something secular unless God gets us? What if we did it the other way around? What if we assume that we're gonna be doing ministry our whole lives unless God leads us in a different direction? Why do we always go the other way? I mean, it's just a question. These aren't biblical things. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just asking. Why do we always assume that? I don't know, just a thought. Let me get back to my notes here instead of off my soapbox. Is this how we pray? Do we pray surrendered? Do we pray with an openness that God will use us to be the answer to the prayer that we just prayed? Or do we pray demanding that God use someone else? Before we, before we end, I, I have to say this. 
Perhaps the most interesting usage of the word amen is not in the Old Testament. It's actually in the New. It's in the New Testament. When Jesus says things like, truly I say to you, or maybe your translation says, most assuredly I say to you, or if you're using the classic translation, verily I say unto you. If you're you're reading in the Gospel of John, truly, truly I say to you. He says it twice. Verily, verily I say unto you. Those are all translations of amen. What Jesus is saying there is amen, I say to you, or amen and amen, 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 I say to you. What's so interesting is that he doesn't say it at the end of what he says. He says it at the beginning of what he says, which is unprecedented in Israel at the time. Remember, I told you that that in the Old Testament, the word amen is always responsive. And yet when we get to Jesus, it is not responsive. It occurs at the beginning of what he says. And when he says something that begins with the words, amen, amen, I say to you, this is something that you need to pay attention to. What is he doing there? It's completely unprecedented. Why? It demonstrates his absolute, unqualified, sovereign authority to call you and me to a faithful response to his word. When Jesus says, amen, I say to you, he is introducing the fact that I have authority to call you to this. I have the authority to demand that this is what you believe. That this is what you surrender to. That my words, though heaven and earth pass away, my words will last forever. Verily I say unto you, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, amen, amen, we need to pay attention. Why is that? Because he is the amen. Revelation chapter three, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea writes the words of the amen. Who is that? It is Jesus. He is the object of our faith. He is the object of our amens. He is the one to whom all of our amens are directed. He is the source of our community. He is the source, the object of our confession. And he is the purpose of our commitment to be more like him. All of it goes back to him. And when we say amen, we are saying that, Lord, I want my prayers to be Christ-centered, not me-centered. When we say amen, we want our church to be Christ-centered, not me-centered. When we say amen, I want my day to be centered in Christ, not in my, my things that I want to do. When we say amen, our heart's cry is to be like Jesus Christ. He is the object of everything we do to know Christ. Our heart's cry is to be like him and to serve Christ. We confess Christ. We are the community of Christ and we are committed to be like Christ. He is the object and purpose of everything and all of that is expressed in amen. I'll leave you at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. 
says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it is through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Can we say amen this morning? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these truths that you've given us. We thank you for your word and for its stout working in our hearts this morning. Lord, just one little word can convey so much. And lest we be in danger of praying with vain repetition, Lord, may we take this word and may we repeat it with all the understanding that we have gathered today from various portions of your scriptures. May we be confessing of your truth and yourself. May we be committed to our community. Lord, this is not a self-community. This community is not here for me, but we are all here for you and for one another. Fads come and go, trends come and go but the words and the blood of Jesus Christ last forever. So Lord, may we focus our community upon the work that your blood shed for us and upon the teaching of your word that will make us more like you. And may we be committed this week evermore to be faithful, to be committed, to be the work that you would have us do. Don't let us get sidetracked. Make us more like Jesus Christ. Lord, great is your faithfulness. And may our amen, may our faithfulness be great toward you. We stand and sing this great reminder of our God's faithfulness. I pray that we can say amen together this morning and all the meaning of that word. Let's stand together and sing this.